Well, good morning, church. Another totally beautiful day in West Michigan. Anybody praying for rain? Well, we need a little bit of it. So here's the Sunday morning question for you. What is God worth to you? I just want to pause let you think about that. What is God worth to you? And I want you to know this is not a throwaway question because your answer has everything to do with a very special part of a spiritual discipline. And that spiritual discipline is worship. And we've been in this summer series on different spiritual disciplines. I'm so thankful they asked me to do this on worship. I want you to know that my own heart has been expanded. My own mind has been expanded as I've studied this wonderful spiritual discipline that we call worship. The Greek word for worship, which is in our text, literally means to prostrate yourself, to fall before a divinity, generally speaking, and to bring gifts worthy of that divinity. The English language for worship, literally, the etymology is a combination of two words, worth-ship. When we were, our kids were smaller, every Christmas we had a family tradition of watching this wonderful Christmas story called Little Lord Fauntleroy. Do I have a witness? I guess not, so I have to tell you about this. It's about a, a, an aged grandpa British aristocrat who has this massive estate and wealth, and he has no heirs. And so he, he sends one of his men to research, do I have an heir anywhere? Come to find out the only heir he has is a grandson he forgot all about, who lives with his single mother in Boston in the slums. And so he run, the, this emissary runs over to get this little kid and to bring him back and to make him an heir and make him an aristocrat. And the guy walks into these slums and little Lord Fauntleroy is playing kick can in the street with his friends. And all of a sudden he takes him back to England and he becomes a lord, this little kid. And when he walks through the villages, the peasant villagers bow like this and say, Lord Fauntleroy, Lord Fauntleroy. They are bowing to his lordship, to his lordness. And in a real sense, we are like sinful peasants compared to the glorious holiness of God. As he walks through our lives, we recognize his worth and bow to his worthness, to his worthship. That is exactly what the English word worship means. And I don't know of a better place to unwrap this whole topic than the book of Revelation chapter 4. So get your Bibles and let's go there together. And as we always do at this church, in honor to God's word, we stand if you can. If you can't, then stand in your heart. And you follow, follow along as I read. 
John writes, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, John says, I was in the spirit, and I behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Chameleon. And around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne were four living creature creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third one with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne, worshiping him who lives forever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May God add his blessing to this amazing picture of God on the throne in heaven. You may be seated. <clears throat> so John takes us into the throne room of God and uh, it's a, a stunning picture of what we have. We have this massive throne with God sitting on the throne. And there's thunder and there's lightning and there's rainbows and there's shooting off fireworks like and this beautiful sea of glass in front of him. Just to, to capture our imagination of the majesty and the glory and the power of God. And then around are four living creatures, probably cherubims with wings and eyes all around them. And what I kind of find fascinating it's not just his throne. There's 24 other thrones in there. And seated on the 24 other thrones are 24 elders. These are representatives, I think, of the kingdom of Christ. And uh, they're sitting on their thrones, which is a sign of authority and power and leverage. So these are really cool guys. And to top it all off, they're all wearing gold crowns on their heads, and it's this, this amazing picture of, of them because at the end, and I think this is very significant, at the end of the chapter, these guys sitting on the thrones have all dethroned themselves. They're off their thrones. They're lying prostrate before, by the way, I've been working all week not to say prostate when I say this. <laughs> So bear with me. 
<laughs> they're lying prostrate on the throne before God and they're taking off, they're decrowning themselves and throwing their crowns before this holy God on the throne. Falling prostrate is an act of humility. Falling prostrate is an act of surrender. Falling prostrate after you've been sitting on a throne is kind of redefining your whole sense of self-worth compared to the Almighty God. And the crowns, uh, basically, in Scripture, uh, God's people are rewarded by getting crowns. So this is their accomplishments and and they are decrowning themselves by throwing their crowns to the Lord. So this is the sense of in the presence of a holy God, there's this abject humility and surrender and total change of view of myself, dethroned, decrowned. And our text calls this worship. And they fell down and worshiped him. So worship, and I, I know how we listen to messages in and out, I'm in it. That's the way I listen to messages. I'm in, then I'm out, then I'm in, then I'm out. So you've, anybody out right now? <laughs> you got to get in for this. Because I'm going to tell you what the biblical definition of worship is based on this text. Are you in? All right. So worship is the intentional activity of living my life in a way that reflects his worth and his value to me. It's exactly what these elders are doing. Worship is the intentional activity of living my life in a way that reflects his worth and his value to me. So that means that worship is more than a place. Let's go to church this morning and worship. Well, thank the Lord we can worship here. But worship is much bigger than that. Uh, worship is not a feeling like I went to sang all these songs. I, I felt so good. Well, that, that could be a part of worship. But worship is so much broader than that. True worship is a lifestyle. True worship is a lifestyle driven by the worth and value of God to you. So what is God worth? So our text gives us two compelling features of God that prompt worship in our lives. Number one is his holiness. The, uh, the cherubims are singing hold it constantly. Like, why, did you ever get tired of singing worship songs that keep repeating over and over and over again? Well, those songs have a precedent in heaven, right? Like this is, they constantly sing holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God, to think that God is holy, literally means that he is separate, that he is different, that he is distinct, that you can't compare him to anyone else. God is not like your superhero, all right? He's not compared to you. He's not compared to Bob or Sally or anything else. He is totally distinct. He is absolutely other. And in that otherness, he is absolutely pure, without fault. 
And, and what I like to think is these seraphims, they have eyes all around. They're watching, they see everything. And they keep going like there is no fault. We saw, we're looking, but there is no fault. Like he is pure, faultless, totally other, this almighty, holy God, which has some important ramifications. That means that his virtues are without fault, unlike anything you've ever seen before, that his mercy will always be reliable will always be good, will always be right, that his love is holy. It is never failing. It is without fault, that his justice is holy. He will make all things right that are wrong. And all of his virtues are pure and good and faultless and the wonderful thing for me is I can count on that because he is a holy God. And that sense of worth and value in my own life drives me to want to worship him. The second quality of God in our text that reflects his worth and value is that he is the creator Last week, Matt was talking about the beautiful creation. Remember he showed the sunset picture? And uh, what beauty. I don't know about you, but I marvel at the creative work of our God. Have you ever been out at night in a dark sky and looked and see the sky blanketed with bazillions of stars and planets? Did you ever say, like, how did that happen? I have a witness. You're like, where'd that come from? And that one star I'm looking at, the light started before Christ was born and finally got to me that night. And how did that happen? And how do they all stay in place? And how, how could the universe go on forever? That's the big one right there for me. Like, I can't think the universe can go on forever because I always think there has to be a shell out there somewhere, like an eggshell. So there's got to be a stop. Of course, then I think on the other side of the shell, there has to be something again. But So my infinite God has infinite wisdom. He gets the point. I don't get the point. But I think it's totally amazing. Totally amazing. I think the beauty of a sunset. I think the beauty of the leaves in autumn. How did he do that chemical thing? And the, the amazing thing about that is they never clash. Did you ever notice that? The colors never clash. I, like, I have a problem. Yeah, how many times has Marty said to me when I'm walking out the door, like, you can't go out like that. <laughs> <laughs> that does not match. Go back to the closet. We'll get you fixed right. But not the beauty of the fall. Just marvel at this creator. And the animal kingdom. I remember one time, Marty and I were in Hawaii. I was asked to speak at a conference in Hawaii. It's so interesting, when you get asked to speak at a conference in Hawaii in January, you really hear the voice of God, real clear. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to take a break. And... Uh, we decided to go out on this boat and watch the humpback whales, which are amazing. 
All right, so these, these humpback whales get to be like 40 feet long. And they weigh like a ton of foot. They're huge. And you can watch them breach, you know, jump out of the ocean and splash back in. And the uh, naturalist on the boat took the mic and started telling us about these humpback whales. They said, these animals are like totally amazing. They say, she said, they uh, uh, feed in the Alaskan oceans during the summer. She said, they're opportunistic grazers. They just eat anything in their way. I thought, that's kind of like me. Like, <laughs> like, I'm an opportunistic grazer, right? That's how I live my life. And then they conceive, and then they swim back to the Hawaiian Islands, and they each have their own place. They go back to the same place every year, every winter. They have their own condo in Hawaii. And she said, then they give birth. And they're mammals, right? So if they gave birth head first, the baby would drown. The babies, by the way, all you mothers take heart, weigh about nine pounds, or nine, nine tons, all right? So that's the babies. And uh, she said, so they're born breech, tail first. And then a midwife whale comes along and pushes the little one up to the surface so it can take its first breath. I'm going, who taught them how to do that? And they sing a song. Oh, you, was it Star Wars had the whale song movie, remember? Is that? You people are so totally ignorant people. Like, what's that? Like, <laughs> You don't know Little Lord Fauntleroy. You don't know the whale song movie. Anyway, they all sing this song. And every whale, humpback whale in the world sings the same song. Every year the song changes by about 25%. Every humpback whale in the, um, in the oceans sing the new song. In a year they're all singing a brand new song. I'm going, oh my goodness. And I'm just rejoicing. What's a great creator I have to show his presence and his power like through this huge fish. And then she said, if you had been here five millions of years ago, you would not have seen this because it was a land animal that slowly made its way into the ocean. <laughs> I wanted to grab the mic, like, lady, give me your mic. I want to tell you how this really happened. My God is a phenomenal creator. <laughs> and our own bodies. You know, you get a wound on your arm, starts to bleed, and the alarm goes out. White blood cells, white blood cells, white. And all of a sudden, all these white blood cells go rushing down to your arm to deal with the infection. How do they know how to do that? And then the blood coagulates. How did it know how to do that? And then it forms a little scab, and all of a sudden, you're better. How did that happen? Well, God just kind of said, that's the way I want it to be. And he spoke. And it became <laughs> a marvelous creator. And I think of me, that he has created me in his image. That he is the creator. And I am the object of that creation. The creator and the created. In fact, there's a certain power structure there, isn't there? There's certain um, levels of, if he is the created and I am the creator, then I don't supersede him ever. Then I owe him a debt that 
I follow him because I am the created. And the text tells us that this God is a holy God who is the ultimate, and by the way, all through scripture, his major signature of validity is that he is the creator of all things. And by him, all things subsist. And this holy created God that has such personal ramifications for me speak to his worth and his value and they drive me to want to worship him. But there is one more value and worth of God that makes this all very personal and intensely wonderful and that finally drives us to desire to worship this God and is found in chapter five because it is that God is not only our holy God, our creator God, but he is our redeemer God. So we're gonna put it up on this. You all look way too comfortable. So we're gonna stand and read the slides. Revelation chapter five. So we're still in the throne room of God now in Revelation five, you've got God on the throne, the elders on their faces, the crowns rattling across the floor to the foot of the almighty God. And then in chapter five, he continues. All right, all together, we're gonna read this out loud. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. Time out, who is the slain lamb? So now Jesus enters the throne room and stands between God on the throne and the elders. The lamb had more seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, then the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Would you have liked to have been there when that was going on? Amen. You may be seated. This holy, almighty creator is my redeemer and he's your redeemer. I remember watching the testimony of an astronaut 
who had come back from outer space, who was a follower of Christ. And he said in this testimony, he said, I looked at all of creation and the marvel of it. And he said, then it struck me that the one who did this cared for me. And tears were running down his cheek. He says, this God, he cares for me. And he sent his son, the lamb of God, and paid the price to make me his and make me his and him be mine. And you could just tell he was overwhelmed by the thought that this creator could be his personal redeemer. I was reminded as I was thinking about that this week of the prodigal son who came back and he said to his father, I am not worthy to be called your son. I am not worthy. And the father, who a normal Jewish father, given what this son had done to him in the family, probably would have taken him behind the woodshed and even the score. But not this father, not our father, to the one who was not worthy, the arms of the father wrapped around this boy and pulled him close to himself and marched him up to the house and gave him a new robe and gave him sandals because he would no longer be a slave and put the ring of authority of his son on his finger and killed the fatted calf and had a huge celebration because this God takes us who are so totally unworthy in all of his holiness and creative power and brings him to ourselves. I was also thinking this week about the time when I served the Lord at the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. We had a big conference, and we invited the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir to come and sing at our conference. Have you, has anybody heard the Brooklyn? Don't, the three strikes and you're out on this one. So, like, <laughs> so I'm telling you, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir knows how to sing, all right? like 180 voices and we're in this like 2,000 seat auditorium and the choir loft is just packed. And these are people saved out of the bowels of Brooklyn. I mean, there's drug addicts up there singing, former prostitutes up there singing, uh, pushers up there singing. And the house lights went down. And I saw the spotlights on the choir and they began singing a song about the redemption of God and how many of them had tears running down their cheeks singing about the redemption of God because they knew what it meant to be rescued from a life of sin. And I have to tell you that that I felt a little cheated in a sense because I don't have that experience. I can't really feel the, the amazing redemptive power of God I mean, I accepted the Lord when I was six. My dad was preaching on the second coming of Christ, and I thought, whoa, if he does come back, my family's going and not me. I wasn't sure about my sisters, but I knew my mom and dad were going. (laughs) So after the service, I asked my dad, and he opened up. I still remember that day. And he led me to the Lord when I was six. So I was saved from things like biting my sister, you know, like... No major criminal offenses, right? Like, and so I'm sitting there watching them tearfully 
were worshiping God for their redemption. And then it struck me. Where would I be today if the Lord had not rescued me with his redemption when I was six? Where would my life be today if the Holy Spirit hadn't been leading me to follow Christ? Giving me the power to reduce to resist temptation, giving me a sense of self-control. I was never, not perfect, obviously, but then I began to rejoice in that redemption as well, like he rescued me when I was just a kid, and then he barricaded all this, you know, what from my life, and then I thought how wonderful the redemption of Christ is for me. And we used to sing a song uh, Years ago, this could be number four for you, actually. Uh, we used to sing a song by Andy Crouch and went something like this. How can I say thanks for the things he has done for me? These holy, creator, redemptive things. How can I say thanks for the things he has done for me? Things so undeserved that he did to prove his love for me. The voices of a million angels, the song goes, cannot express my gratitude. All that I am or ever hope to be, I owe it all to him. God be the glory, to God be the glory for the things that he has done. So really, this response of worship, the dethroning of myself, the decrowning of myself before this almighty, holy, creator, redeeming God, is, uh, is the way I say thanks. Committing intentional acts of worship that reflect his worth and value to you is your way of saying thanks. Can I say that again? Committing intentional acts of worship that reflect his worth and value to you is your way of saying thanks. So... Let's talk about this kind of worship. Uh, what is the nature of this true worship? There's some thoughts from the text, that some nuances in the text. And I've just said it, but first of all, I just want you to know that worship is gratitude in action. It's when gratitude moves you forward to be a worshiper of God. And that word action is very important. Notice that the elders did not sit there and say, Oh, yeah, thanks a lot, Lord. We love you, and this is great. And they're still on their own thrones, being Joe Cool, and they still have their crowns. <laughs> but there was a definite action happening here. They responded by dethroning themselves, prostrating themselves, giving their, their glory and honor to the Almighty God. Number two, worship is a response. Keeping his worth and value front and center in your mind will drive you to worship. His holiness, he creating you in his image, his redemption of you. you th there is a spiritual discipline of meditating on the value and worth of God. And the deeper you go, the more ready you are to respond with worship to him. Worship is personal, number three. Interesting that for the most part, didn't always happen, but for, for, if you were an Old Testament saint, in order to worship, where did you have to go? You had to go to the temple, right? And you had to take, interestingly, your best lamb, 
This is not just a lamb or your best goat, and it's not a goat. And you had to have who? A priest, right? And they had to sanctify the vessels. So that's how you had to worship in the Old Testament for the most part. The New Testament is so different. For you now, worship is a very personal thing. Because um, what's the temple now? I'm the temple, right? Scripture tells me that. And we are believer priests. First Peter 2, we are a royal priesthood. We don't need a priest to take us to God. We can have direct access to God ourselves. We are priests and we are purified vessels. So in essence, you know, my body, my life is like a moving worship experience because it's so intimate from me, out of me. I don't need a place. I don't need a priest. I don't need a cleansing of the vessels. That cleansing happened at the cross. And so worship is an intensely personal reality, wonderfully personal. Number four, it's spontaneous and intentional. Not an obligation. You know, in, in our text, one of the angels didn't say, okay, now all you elders, get off your thrones and take your crowns off. It's time to, it, was not, it wasn't an obligation. It happened because they saw and encountered a holy creator called their God who had redeemed them. And it was spontaneous. It happened. Uh, it's kind of like, and I think in this spontaneity, you ought to live your life looking for ways to worship God. Every day you ought to be like, how can I do, and, and we'll talk a little bit more what some of those tools are in a second, but yeah, that you're constantly looking for ways to say thank you through worship. I remember the time that Marty, we had dinner and we had the pots and the pans and the dishes and everything and uh, all stacked up after dinner and Marty went out, I forget what, you know, maybe you go shopping with friends, who knows, but left the kitchen kind of a mess thinking when she came home, she'd clean it up, right? So I'm thinking, you know what? I could clean the kitchen up while she's gone. It's a rare moment in our family. But anyway, that was... <laughs> so I just dug in. I said, cleaning the pots and pans, washing, filling the dishwasher, putting everything away, clearing out the ketchup is back in the fridge, and, the, you know, everything's done, and then wipe off the counters. It looked like a brand-new kitchen. Now, I just want to say, like, it was amazing how this kitchen looked like. And Marty came home. I remember she came home, and she goes like, wow, Joe, this is fabulous. Why did you do this? I said, because I'm committed to the institution of marriage. And this is an obligation that I have. I didn't say that. I said, you know what, Marty? I just kind of look for ways to let you know how much I love you, to let you know how much I appreciate all you've done for me. I just look for ways. And so I thought this might be one small way. And that's what worship is looking for those opportunities to thank God for all that he is to us. Worship is expensive and extravagant. David, 2 Samuel 22, wants to worship the Lord in one of his trips. 
and he's got his whole entourage. And he comes up to this farmer because this farmer has a place where he can build an altar and worship his God, right? You remember, you remember this? This could be five. You remember this story like from the Old Testament? And so he goes to the farmer and he says, hey, I want to buy this little part of your farm because, and the farmer's going like, dude, you're the king. (laughs) I don't sell stuff to the king. You can have it. You know, just take it. Just like, no prob, bro. Just take it. And David says, I must pay, pay for it because I will not worship my Lord with that which costs me nothing. True worship is a stretch beyond the convenient. It's expensive. The the more expensive it is, the more we tell God about something, about our love for him. In college, her name was Jan, and she was engaged to one of my friends. His name was Denny, and they were both committed to going to the Lord's work. In fact, felt like the Lord had called them to Brazil to be missionaries. So they set the date had the ring, sent out the invitations. Jan had her wedding dress all picked out. And Denny comes to her one time and says, Jan, you know what? I don't know how to say this, but I really don't feel called to Brazil. I really think God wants me to be a pastor here in the States. Jan knew that God had called her to Brazil. And she went to Brazil, wedding canceled, single missionary. That was an expensive act of worship to her worthy God. He was worth the value of that. It's extravagant. It can be expensive. But the more expensive it is, the better statement that it makes. Interestingly enough, Jan got down there, met a widower who had five kids, married the widower who had five, an instant family. (laughs) Uh, God doesn't always work it out like that, but I will never forget her decision to count the worthiness of her God worthy of the dreams of her life. And worship is unconditional. Job. I I think you probably know about the deal on Job. Job chapter 1, Satan comes to God, and and God says, where have you been? And Satan says, traveling to and fro throughout the earth. Periodically, I travel a lot. I come home, and Marty says, where have you been? I'm going, I'm traveling to and fro throughout the whole earth. (laughs) The parallel stops there, actually. (laughs) So... uh, God said to him, have you seen my man Job, who's righteous? You know what I'm thinking? Would God ever say that about me? What a wonderful thing. When my accuser comes before the throne for God said, do you see my man Job? What kind of a life he's living? But he says that. And then Satan slanders the character of God before all the angelic hosts. By the way, that's what's going on here. He says, yeah, the only reason he's righteous is because you've been good to him. You've given him a big family. You've made him rich. You've given him property. If you take that away from him, he'll curse you. And he slandered this quality of God, that God is worthy to be worshiped and praised regardless. 
our God is worthy to be worshiped and praised regardless. That was a great place for an amen right there. So, so God says, okay, let's see. This is a test. I'm going, Job, if you only knew what was going on, dude, just kind of hang in there. And a lot of times we think our troubles and struggles are about this planet. This is extraterrestrial. This is a struggle going, and I'm at the midst of this extraterrestrial struggle. (laughs) And so Job gets some news. By the way, God protected him because he said, you can't do this, you can't do this. I like that. God gave Satan certain liberty, not total liberty. He'll always protect you. And so somebody comes to Job and says, oh, there's been a terrible hurricane and all your houses and barns have been, oh, there's been, your, all your kids have died. Another, there's this whole litany of people who come to Job, bad news, bad news, bad news, terrible news. And it says, Job stood up, rent his clothes, bowed down, and worshiped his God. Because Job would prove the point that my God is worthy to be worshiped and praised regardless. God does not change. He still is the holy God. He still is the creator God. He still is the redeemer God. Nothing has changed. And he is the God who works all things together for good. Take the long view on this kind of stuff. And his wife was so comforting. Actually, I just love his wife. She goes like, hey, dude, curse God and die. That's exactly what Satan wanted to have happen. And Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That was a statement of worship in the midst of the deepest despair. Worship is unconditional. So what are the resources that you and I have to trigger this worship? Well, number one, like in this text, they're singing, hold their lips. And we had this wonderful worship time this morning, didn't we? Vocalizing our love to a worthy God. So that's part of it, but that's not the end of it. That's only the beginning. Because we have the opportunity with our lips to do what they did with their crowns. When they cast their crowns, they literally transferred their worth and glory and honor to God, right? The crown was their honor, was their glory. They're transferring it to God. We have the opportunity with our lips. Something good happens. When we get some kind of honor, we get some kind of glory to to transfer that honor to God. I'll never forget my one all-time, not going to ask you when this happened, was my one all-time favorite sporting event was the Masters, and it closed on Easter Sunday, and Bernard Langer was walking up the 18th fairway, and uh, he got up and sunk the putt, won the green jacket, the biggest prize in golf, the greatest day of his life probably, and uh, in the interview, which they always do, they had this mic, and the guy goes like, this must be the best day in your whole life. I'll, I'll never forget what I heard. Bernard Langer says, well, probably the best day in my golfing career. But it doesn't compare to the fact that 2,000 years ago today, my Lord and Savior rose from the grave to give me everlasting life. And he transferred, he took his crown off and put it at the feet of Jesus Christ. 
your lips? What can you say to honor and glorify Christ? Somebody comes to me. Well, I, I don't know why it never happens, but if, if somebody were to come to me, hey, good sermon, Joe. Be, why doesn't that ever happen? But let's just say it does, it did happen. I would just say, well, what did you expect? Oh, that's it, keeping the crown on my head, right? No, I couldn't say that, could I? Here's what I know. I know that without the gifts that God has given me, without the family he permitted me to be reared in, without the education that he allowed me to have, without a wife like he's given me, the list is long, without all of those things that God has given to me, I would be nothing, absolutely nothing. And if a moment like that ever happened, I would have to tell you or whoever said it, well, thank you, that's an encouragement to me, but I just want you to know that God had a message for you today and that you opened your heart and you heard the voice of God and that's how much he loves you because I'm clueless about what's going on in your life. And if this message touched your life, it is because God loves you and God wanted you to hear that and to take the crown off and put it at his feet. Or your wealth, your lips. That's one of the tools you have. You, or your wealth. I think of Mary, you know, Lazarus' sister who brought her alabaster. That's the most, it's like a year's wages. I mean, I can just see her going into her bedroom and she's got all these perfume bottles up there and, and she looks at midnight in Moab and my sin. And, <laughs> and she said, no, not good enough. Not good enough. I bought that at J.C. Penney. Not good enough. Not good enough. I got to get the best. And she takes the alabaster and she breaks it at the feet of Christ and anoints him with her best wealth, the very best. She stretches to tell Jesus how much she loves him for all that he has done. And I think of Judas standing off to the side who said, What a waste. I mean, this guy's clueless says, what a waste. We could have sold this and given it to the poor. And John gives us the editorial. He really didn't love the poor, but he was the treasurer and wanted, he stole money from the treasury and he wanted more money to steal. That was his problem. And the contrast between the greed, the gain, and the one who with their wealth fully worships to the extreme. And we all have wealth. The kingdom wants our wealth. This, this stretch to give our, I'm reminded of um, <laughs> the conversation between a $100 bill and a $10 bill. The $100 bill, $10 bill, hey, what have you been doing? The $100 bill, I'm having a good time. I've been to a resort. I've been shopping in the best stores. Yeah, I've been to a couple really cool restaurants. What about you, $10 bill? Church, church, church. That's all I ever see is church. That's all I ever go to is church. <laughs> but our wealth that we can make a statement. Our time. Last week we talked about the discipline of silence and solitude. How many times I have to confess, I say, oh, I, haven't, I haven't been in the word yet today and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon or eight o'clock at night and we're like, oh, and I haven't given him my best time, my 
best time, when I was most alert because it was an act of worship, I want to hear from him. Listening, listening in that time. How many of you work to listen to God, to what he has to say? I find that when I pray in extension, when I spend more time in his word, I hear from him. Do I have a witness on that? He talks to me about myself. He talks to me about my problems. He talks to me about things I should be doing. I'm listening to him, taking the time to honor him. I think this is a guy problem. I hope it's a guy problem. But after years of marriage, I'm still working on this. Marty and I can be driving along, and she goes on this extensive monologue about something and then traps me by saying, what do you think? And I, I haven't been listening. I've been thinking about something else. So I just say, well, what do you think? You know, trying to get out of it. Like, but if I would have, it would have been a statement to her. She tells me, Joe, just listen. And that's a statement of worth and value that I honor her, that I, she has worth to me, that I listen. And that's one of the tools, a listening ear in the best time of your day and service. My sermon prep this week for our time together. You know, I kept saying, oh, wow. None of you know the anxiety of preaching, all right? Here I stand before all of you people who are doing on a scale of one to 10. (laughs) Like, 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 ah. So, and I'm thinking about the anxiety of preaching and I'm thinking about the time for preparation and it's not quite coming the way I want it to come. And then I thought to myself, serving Christ is an act of worship. And when I preach on Sunday, it will be my worship to Christ. Regardless of what happens, how often do we get opportunities to serve him as a statement of his worth and value to us. And last, the last tool is our obedience. It's very clear that worship and obedience go hand in hand together. I think of Abraham, what a tough obedience that was. Genesis chapter 22, God comes and says, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, just stacking it up, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and you know the rest of the story. And you're going like, <laughs> there's places in scripture, I'd say, God, I don't want you to say that, don't do this, don't, don't, don't ask Abraham to do that, <laughs> but God knows best. And in that tough obedience, Abraham obeyed, and he took and built an altar, And God, of course, didn't let the worst happen. He said, I just wanted to know if you fear me. If if the giver is more important than the gift. Because that's our problem. He gives us these gifts. He gave Abraham Isaac. And then Abraham loves Isaac more than he loves his father in heaven. And God asks him in obedience to give up the gift It makes no sense, it's so hard, but his God was worthy of worship and praise regardless, and he went ahead and obeyed. And God wrote the last chapter. It's hard to forgive people, but when you forgive, 
you are expressing the worth and value of God to him. It's an act of worship. So you tell that person that hurt you, you said, I'm going to forgive you, but it has nothing to do with your lame life, all right? I just want you to know that. That's every, I'm, right now, I want, us, I want to worship God with this act of forgiveness, this act of obedience. By the way, I wouldn't recommend you saying that to them. But in your head, that's what it is. That my obedience to you is more important than anything that's happened to me on this planet. To turn the other cheek, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Obedience can be hard. But the harder it is, the bigger statement you make about how worth and what the worth and value of God is to you as you obey. So that's what I meant earlier when I said that worship is a lifestyle. I mean, it's not a place. It's not an event. It's not a time. It's much more than that. It's an everyday reality. When I'm constantly looking for ways to express the worth and value of God, it is his worth-ship is what worship is. And what I love is Romans chapter 12, where Paul has spent 11 chapters spinning out the theology of redemption. And at the end of chapter 11, he kind of launches into this, oh, that my God is above and beyond and everything. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, because of all that I've said, present your bodies as a sacrifice. This is a total reality. My whole body is an instrument. I have a friend who said the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. Stay on the altar. He is worthy. He is worthy. Worship is a lifestyle. Let's pray. Lord, we bring ourselves to you. The list is so long of why you are worthy, but just the, th- the fact that you are our holy God, our creator, our redeemer, that's enough to drive us to every day look for ways to live our lives out in worship to you, to dethrone ourselves, to take our crowns off, to fall before you and express to you how much we believe in what you're worth to us. Thank you for that beautiful picture in Revelation 4 and 5. Lord, we look forward to the day when we're there in the throne room, when worship will be complete and eternal. We pray this in your son's wonderful redeeming name. Amen and amen.